Chapter One of Freckles. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Murray Root. Freckles by Gene Stratton Porter. Chapter One Where Great Risks Are Taken and the Limberlost Guard Is Hired. Freckles came down the corduroy that crosses the lower end of the Limberlost. At a glance, he might have been mistaken for a tramp, but he was truly seeking work. He was intensely eager to belong somewhere and to be attached to almost any enterprise that would furnish him food and clothing. Long before he came in sight of the camp of the Grand Rapids Lumber Company, he could hear the cheery voices of the men, the neighing of the horses, and could scent the tempting odors of cooking food. A feeling of homeless friendlessness swept over him in a sickening wave. Without stopping to think, he turned into the newly made road and followed it to the camp, where the gang was making ready for supper and bed. The scene was intensely attractive. The thickness of the swamp made a dark, massive background below, while above towered gigantic trees. The men were calling jovially back and forth as they unharnessed tired horses that fell into attitudes of rest and crunched in deep content the grain given them. Duncan, the brawny Scotch-head teamster, lovingly wiped the flanks of his big bays with handfuls of pawpaw leaves as he softly whistled, Oh, what will be, my dearie O? <whistles> and a cricket beneath the leaves of his feet accompanied him. The greenwood fire hissed and crackled merrily, wreathing tongues of flame wrapped around the big black kettles. And when the cook lifted the lids to plunge in his testing fork, gusts of savory odors escaped. Freckles approached him. I want to speak with the boss, he said. The cook glanced at him and answered carelessly, He can't use you. The color flooded Freckles' face, but he said simply, If you'll be having the goodness to point him out, we'll give him a chance to do his own talking. With a shrug of astonishment, the cook led the way to a rough board table where a broad, square-shouldered man was bending over some account books. Mr. McLean, here's another man wanted to be taken on the gang, I suppose he said. All right, came the cheery answer. I never needed a good man more than I do just now. The manager turned to Page and carefully began a new line. No use your bother with this fellow, volunteered the cook. He hasn't but one hand. The flush on Freckles' face burned deeper. His lips thinned to a mere line. He lifted his shoulders, took a step forward, and thrust out his right arm from which the sleeve dangled empty at the wrist. "'That'll do, shiz,' came the voice of the boss sharply. "'I will interview my man when I finish this report.' He turned to his work, while the cook hurried to the fires. Freckles stood one instant as he had braced himself to meet the eyes of the manager. Then his arm dropped, and a wave of whiteness swept him. The boss had not even turned his head. He had used the possessive when he said, "'My man!' The hungry heart of Freckles went reaching toward him. The boy drew a quivering breath. Then he whipped off his old hat and beat the dust from it carefully. With his left hand, he caught the right sleeve, wiped his sweaty face, and tried to straighten his hair with his fingers. He broke a spray of ironwork beside him and used the purple plume to beat the dust from his shoulders and limbs. The boss, busy over his report, was nevertheless vaguely alive to the toilet being made behind him and scored one for the man. McLean was a Scotsman. It was his habit to work slowly and methodically. The men of his camps had never known him to be in a hurry or to lose his temper. Discipline was inflexible, but the boss was always kind. His habits were simple. He shared camp life with his gangs. 
The only visible signs of wealth consisted of a big, shimmering diamond stone of ice and fire that glittered and burned on one of his fingers, and the dainty, beautiful thoroughbred mare he rode between camps and across the country on business. No man of McLean's gangs could honestly say that he'd ever been overdriven or underpaid. The boss had never exacted any deference from his men, yet so intense was his personality that no man of them ever had attempted a familiarity. They all knew him to be a thorough gentleman, and that in the great timber city several millions stood to his credit. He was the only son of that McLean who had sent out the finest ships ever built in Scotland. That his son should carry on his business after his father's death had been his ambition. He had sent the boy through the universities of Oxford and Edinburgh, and allowed him several years' travel before he should attempt his first commission for the firm. Then he was ordered to southern Canada and Michigan to purchase a consignment of tall, straight timber for masts and south Indiana for oak beams. The young man entered these mighty forests, parts of which lay untouched since the dawn of the morning of time. The clear, cool, pungent atmosphere was intoxicating. The intense silence, like that of a great, empty cathedral, fascinated him. He gradually learned that to the shy wood creatures that darted across his path or peeped inquiringly from leafy ambush, he was a brother. He found himself approaching, with a feeling of reverence those majestic trees that had stood through ages of sun, wind, and snow. Soon it became difficult to fell them. When he had filled his order and returned home, he was amazed to learn that in the swamps and forests he had lost his heart, and it was forever calling him. When he inherited his father's property, he promptly disposed of it, and, with his mother, founded a home in a splendid residence in the outskirts of Grand Rapids. With three partners, he organized a lumber company. His work was to purchase, fell, and ship the timber to the mills. Marshall managed the milling process and passed the lumber to the factory. From the lumber, Barthel made beautiful and useful furniture, which Uptogrove scattered all over the world from a big wholesale house. Of the thousands who saw their faces reflected in the polished surfaces of that furniture and found comfort in its use, few there were to whom it suggested mighty forests and trackless swamps, and the man, big of soul and body, who cut his way through them, and with the eye of experience doomed the proud trees that were now entering the homes of civilization for service. When McLean turned from his finished report, he faced a young man, yet under twenty, tall, spare, heavily framed, closely freckled, and red-haired, with a homely Irish face, but in the steady gray eyes, straightly meeting his searching ones of blue, there was unswerving candor and the appearance of longing not to be ignored. He was dressed in the roughest of farm clothing and seemed tired to the point of falling. Yet are looking for work, questioned McLean. Yes, answered Freckles. I'm very sorry said the boss, with genuine sympathy in his very tone. But there's only one man I want a present, a hardy, big fellow with stout heart and a strong body. I hoped that you would do, but I'm afraid you're too young and scarcely strong enough. Freckles stood, hat in hand watching McLean. On what was it you thought I might be doing? The boss could scarcely repress a start. Somewhere before accident and poverty, there had been an ancestor who used cultivated English, and even with an accent, the boy spoke with a mellow Irish voice, sweet and pure. It was scarcely definite enough to be called a brogue, yet there was a trick in the turning of the sentence. The wrong sound of a letter here and there was almost irresistible to McLean, 
and presaged a misuse of infinitives and possessives with which he was very familiar, and which touched him nearly. He was a foreign birth, and despite years of alienation, in times of strong feeling he committed inherited sins of accent and construction. "'It's not childish job,' answered McLean. "'I'm the field manager of a big lumber company. We've just leased two thousand acres of Limberlost. Many of these trees are of great value. We cannot leave our camp six miles south for almost a year yet, so we'll have a blaze of the trail and strung bobbed wires securely around this lease. Before we return to our work, we must put this property in the hands of a reliable, brave, strong man while we'll guard it every hour of the day and sleep with an eye open at night. I shall require the entire length of the trail to be walked at least twice each day to make sure our lines are up and that none has been trespassing. Freckles was leaning forward, absorbing every word with such intense eagerness that he was beguiling the boss into explanations he had never intended making. But why wouldn't that be the finest job in the world for me? I'm never sick. I could walk the trail twice, three times every day, and I'd be watching shop all the while. It's because you're scarcely more than a boy, and this will be a trying job for a work-hardened man. You see, in the first place, you would be afraid. In stretching our lines, we killed six rattlesnakes almost as long as your body and as thick as your arm. It's the price of your life to start with the marsh ass surrounding the swamp unless you are covered with heavy leather above your knees. You should be able to swim in case a water undermines the temporary bridge we have built where Sleepy Snake Creek enters the swamp. The fall in winter changes the weather are abrupt and severe, while I would want strict watch kept every day. You would always be alone, and I don't guarantee what is in the Limberlost. It is lying here as it has lain since the beginning of time, and it is alive with forms and voices. I don't pretend to say where all of them come from, but from a few slinking shouts I've seen and air-raising yells I've heard, I'd rather not confront the owners myself, and I'm neither weak nor fearful. Worst of all, any man who will enter the swamp to mark and steal timber is desperate. One of my employees at the South Camp, John Carter, compelled me to discharge him for a number of serious reasons. He came here, entered the swamp alone, and succeeded in locating and marking a number of valuable trees he was endeavoring to sell to a rival company when he secured the lease. He has sworn to have these trees if he has to die or kill others to get them, and he is a man that the strongest would not care to meet. But if he came to steal trees, wouldn't he bring teams and men enough that all anyone could do would be to watch and be after you? queried the boy. Yes, replied McLean. Then why couldn't I be watching just as closely? And coming as fast as an older, stronger man, asked Freckles. Why, but George, you could, exclaimed McLean. I don't know as the size of a man would be half so important as his grit and faithfulness come to think of it. Sit on that log there, and we'll talk it over. What is your name? Freckles shook his head at the proffer of a seat, and folding his arms, stood straight as the trees behind him. He grew a shade whiter, but his eyes never faltered. Freckles, he said. Good enough for every day, 
laughed McLean, but scarcely can put freckles on the company's books. Tell me your name. I haven't any name, replied the boy. I don't understand, said McLean. I was thinking from the voice and the face here that you wouldn't, said Freckles slowly. I've spent more time on it than I ever did on anything else in all my life, and I don't understand. Does it seem to you that anyone would take a newborn baby and row over it until it was bruised black, cut off its hand, and leave it out in a bitter night on the steps of a charity home for the care of strangers? That's what somebody did to me. McLean stared aghast. He had no reply ready, and presently, in a low voice, he suggested, And after? Dome people took me in. I was there the whole legal age and several years over. For the most part, we were a lot of little Irishmen together. We could always find omens for the other children, but nobody would ever be wanting me on account of my arm. Where are they kind of you? McLean regretted the question the minute it was asked. I don't know. The reply sounded so hopeless, even to his own ears, that he hastened to qualify it by adding, You see, it's like this, sir. Kindnesses that people are paid to lay off in job lots that belong equally to several hundred others. I ain't going to be soaking up in any one fellow so much. Go on, said McLean, nodding comprehendingly. There's nothing worth taking of your time to tell. The home was in Chicago. And I was there all my life until three months ago, when I was too old for the training they gave me to the little children. They sent me to the closest water school, as long as the law would let them. But I was never like any of the other children, and they all knew it. I had to go and come like a prisoner, and be working around the womb, early and late for me boarding clothes. I always wanted to learn mighty bad, but I was glad when that was over. Every few days of my life, I had to be called up and looked over and refused a home and love on account of me and an ugly face. But it was all the home I'd ever known. It didn't seem to belong any place else. Then a new superintendent was put in. He wasn't for being like any of the others, and he swore he'd weed me out the first thing he did. He made a plan to send me to the state to a man he'd said he knew who needed a boy. He wasn't for remembering to tell that man that I was a iron short, and he knocked me down the minute he found I was the boy who had been sent to him. Between noon and that evening, he and his son, close my age, and had me pretty much the same shape in which I was found in the beginning. So I lay awake that night and run right away. I'd like to have squared me account with that boy before I left, but I didn't dare for fear of waking the old man, and I couldn't handle the two of them but I'm hoping to meet him alone some day before I die. McLean tugged at his mustache to hide his smile on his lips, but he liked the boy all the better for his confession. I didn't even have to steal clothes to get rid of starting in me home ones, Freckles continued, for they'd already taken all me clean, neat things for the boy and put me into his rugs, and that went almost as sore as the beatings, for where I was we were always kept tidy and sweet-smelling. Anyway, I hustled clear into this state before I learned that the man couldn't have kept me if he'd wanted to, but I thought I was good and away from him. I commenced hunting work, but it was with everybody else, just as it is with you, sir. Big, strong, old men are the only ones for being wanted. I've been studying over this matter, answered McLean. I'm not so sure, but that a man no older than you, and similar in every way, 
could do this work very well if he were not a coward and had it in him to be trustworthy and industrious. Freckles came forward a step. If you would give me a job where I can earn me food, clothes, and a place to sleep, he said, if I can have a boss to work for like other men, and a place I feel I've a right to, I'll do precisely what you tell me, or die trying. He spoke so convincingly that McLean believed, although in his heart he knew that to employ a stranger would be a wretched business for a man with the interests he had involved. Very well, the boss found himself answering. I'll enter you in my payrolls. We'll have supper, and then I'll provide you with clean clothing, wearing boots, and a wider mending apparatus, and a revolver. The first thing in the morning, I will take you the length of the trail myself and explain fully what I want done. All I ask of you is to come to me at once at the South Camp and tell me as a man if you find this job too hard for you. It will not surprise me. It is work that few men would perform faithfully. What name shall I put down? Freckles' gaze never left McLean's face, and the boss saw the swift spasm of pain that swept his lonely, sensitive features. I haven't any name, he said stubbornly. No more than when somebody clapped on me when they put me in the own books. With not thought or care, they'd never house cut. I've seen how they enter those poor little abandoned devils often enough to know. What they call me is no more my name than it is yours. I don't know what mine is, and I never will. But I'm going to be your man and do your work, and I'll be glad to answer to any name you choose to call me. Won't you please be giving me a name, Mr. McLean? The boss wheeled abruptly and began stacking his books. What he was thinking was probably what any other gentleman would have thought in the circumstances. With his eyes still downcast, and in a voice harsh with huskiness, he spoke. "'I'll tell you what will do, my lad. My father was my dear man, and I loved him better than any other I've ever known. He went out five years ago, but that he would have been proud to leave you his name, I firmly believe.' If I give you the name of my nearest kin and the man I loved best, will that do? Freckles' rigid attitude relaxed suddenly. His head dropped, and big tears splashed on the soiled calico shirt. McLean was not surprised at the silence, for he found that talking came none too easily just then. All right, he said. I'll write it on the roll. James Ross McLean. Thank you mightily, said Freckles. That makes me feel almost as if I belonged already. You do, said McLean. Until someone armed, every right comes to claim you, you are mine. Now, come, take a bath, have some supper, and go to bed. As Freckles followed into the lights and sounds of the camp, his heart and soul were singing for joy. End of chapter 1